Well, go ahead and grab your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 3. Uh, as I said in the email that I sent out a couple days ago, and as I said just earlier for announcements, my heart has been drawn to the book of Hebrews as we've been studying through Gentle and Lowly. Such an amazing book, staring at the character of God, staring at how uh, our great high priest sympathizes with us. And so I, I wanted to meditate as we have a little bit of a break between finishing our study in Jonah and beginning our study in the Passion Week, just two Sundays to meditate on the character as revealed to us in the book of Hebrews. I don't know if you've ever thought, I'm sure you have, actually I know you have because it's 2020, so I know you've thought before, man, I wish I could go back in time to a different, a different year, a different day. I wish I could go back. Maybe some nostalgic thought of, I wish uh, I could go back to that time, or, or I wish we could go back to a simpler uh, normal, right? That's the, the buzzword. I wish you could go back to those normal times that we had, the good old days. I know that when we're in the middle of difficulties and we wish we could go back, sometimes we feel like just giving up altogether. I know that we've had feelings of that even uh, during this crazy, chaotic time. Uh, I just wish this all would end, and until it ends, let's just go ahead and not do anything. Let's just give up. Maybe you feel that way spiritually. Maybe you feel like, I'm not, I'm not even going to make it to the finish line, so I might as well just stop. Things are so challenging as I run my race to win, things are so challenging that I might as well just give up now. I remember when I was in fifth grade, uh, I ran the mile in track. Don't ask me why. That sounds like a terrible idea right now. I don't want to run. That's four times around the laps. If you go out there to the, the, the track four times around, which I could probably run one time and then die uh, right now. I, I'm in no shape whatsoever to run four times around it. But because I have very long legs, they said, you'd be good for the mile, so okay, might as well do it. I remember at the starting line to run the mile, the little gun goes off, I take one step and I get tripped up by the person next to me, just fall flat on my face. And at that moment I decided, I thought that running the mile was a dumb idea. This has proved that it's a dumb idea. I might as well just stop. Let's just walk over to the, the stands, cry, and go home, right? That's, that's the moral of this story. But I got up, kept running. I wish I could say I, I got first place. That would be a good end to the story. Even just finishing in third to get on the podium would be nice. I finished fourth, so I uh, didn't even make it to uh, medal. But I finished the race. Even though I felt like quitting, I finished the race. What about you? Do you feel like giving up in some area of your life, spiritually, in your job, in a relationship? If you do, if you feel like giving up or if you, feel, if you feel like you're not going to make it to the end successfully, you're not alone. Uh, the, the letter to the Hebrews is written to Jewish Christians in the face of such severe persecution that they are thinking, we, we got to give up. Uh, we started running the race as Christians and we should just go back to Judaism. We should just go back to being uh, only complete, fully functioning Jews and just ditch the idea of being Christians altogether. They were asking, why is God allowing this? Maybe we should just go back to Judaism altogether. And the author of Hebrews is writing to say, 
don't give up, don't quit, don't go back. And his, the, the thesis of this book, the, the main argument of this book to say, don't give up, don't quit, don't go back, the main argument is because Jesus is better. If you go back to Judaism, you give up Christ as Messiah, and if you give up Christ as Messiah, you give up the best thing in life. And so he writes to prove Jesus is better. He's better than anything in this world. There are five warnings in this book of why you shouldn't give up, why you shouldn't turn away and go back to Judaism. There's exhortations in this book to keep on persevering and not give up. And the second of these warnings in this book is going to be before us this morning. I want to read the whole thing. I want to read the whole warning. It's in chapter 3, verse 7, all the way through chapter 4. Let's read it together, starting in chapter 3, verse 7. Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me as in the day of trial in the wilderness where your fathers tried me by testing me. They saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was angry with this generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They did not know my ways. And I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. So take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God, but encourage one another day after day, as long as it's still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. While it is said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me. For who provoked him when they had heard, indeed not, did not all those who came out of Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell on the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. Therefore, let us fear if while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you may seem to have come short of it. For indeed we have had good news preached to us, just as they also. But the word they heard did not profit them, because it was not united by faith in those who heard. For we who have believed enter that rest, just as he said, As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest although his works are finished from the foundation of the world. For he has said somewhere concerning the seventh day, God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this passage, they shall not enter my rest. Therefore, since it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly had good news preached to them failed to enter because of disobedience, he again fixes a certain day, today. Same through David after so long a time, just as has been said before, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken of another day after that. So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works as God did from his. Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest so that no one will fall through following some example of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active sharper than any two-edged sword, and it's piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, and it's able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. 
and there's no hidden, no creature hidden from his sight. But all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in times of need. Father, we ask that you would work in our hearts this morning uh, to live out exactly what we just read. For any person who is, is here presently uh, listening to my voice, who is watching online listening to my voice, or who will be watching this down the road, that none of us would, while hearing, not hear, while listening, not have ears that would hear, that we would hear your voice and not harden our hearts but receive the word that you would give to us this morning. God, give us soft hearts, open hearts. Give us ears to hear. And Father, I pray that we would do exactly what this text says, that we would draw near to you. We have seen so many reasons why we should be doing that as we've been studying your word, as we've been reading through gentle and lowly. We've seen so many reasons why we should draw near. And so, Father, I pray this morning that you would enable us to draw near all the more for those that are considering giving up, for those that think that they won't make it to the finish line, for those that think maybe you're not worth it. Maybe there's something better out there. God, I pray today that they would see with confident assurance you are better by far than anything this world has to offer. Holy Spirit, open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your law this morning. We pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior, our great high priest. Amen. The second of the five warnings, as we said in the book of Hebrews, is before us this morning. The heart of it is in chapter 4, verses 8 through 11. But there aren't just warnings of what will happen negatively if you decide to stop persevering and walk away. There's also warnings in the positive of what you will lose positively. If you decide to, to quit, if you decide to go back, in, in their case, to Judaism, or in our case, just to say, I'm done, I'm going back to my former manner of life. If you decide to do that, you will not only have bad things happen to you, but you will also lose out on good things, on the best things. That's why Martin Luther says, after terrifying us in this book, the apostle comforts us with the beauty of Christ. If you turn away from Christianity, you turn away from Jesus himself. And so the author of Hebrews is pleading with the Jewish Christians to see that Jesus is better than everything that they love about Judaism. He's better than angels in chapter 1. He's better than Moses in chapter 3. He's better than Joshua in chapter 4. He's better than Melchizedek. He's better than the temple. He's better than Aaron himself. He's better than the office that Aaron held, the priesthood. He's described in verses 14 through 16 as the great high priest, literally in the text, the great, great priest. He's the best priest that there ever was. In fact, he is such an amazing priest that he renders obsolete the office 
of priesthood. The job of being a priest in this life is over. No more earthly priests at all. Completely gone. I was watching Mary Poppins with my kids recently, and watching that movie, you see uh, Dick Van Dyke is a chimney sweep, shows up just wearing all black, has soot on his face, and my kids say, what's he doing? This is big, gnarly brush. What's he doing? I said, oh, yeah, he's a chimney sweep. What is that? They don't, they don't know what that is. We don't see, you know, some chimney sweep knock at our door, say, good evening, governor. We don't, we don't have that today, right? That's obsolete. We don't have that job. This is something called occupational obsolescence. And if you doubt that this is a reality in life, just ask a horse, right? Ask a horse. Do you still have the job that you used to have? No, they don't, right? It was taken away by the train. It was taken away by the car. The tractor does what they were supposed to do so long ago. We don't have telegraph operators anymore. We don't have switchboard operators anymore. There's no milkman anymore. Today, there'd be an almond milkman or an oat milkman. We don't have those. It doesn't happen. Here in chapter 4, we have the ultimate occupational obsolescence. The high priest's job is gone. No more earthly high priest. Now, sometimes... In Protestantism, we think we don't need a priest at all. Get rid of all priests, period. Now, yes, get rid of all earthly priests. We don't need human earthly priests here. But it is not true that we don't need a priest. We desperately need a priest. And we have one in heaven who stands between us and the Father, the great high priest, and his high priestly work is essential if you're going to cross the finish line with perseverance and if you're going to draw near in prayer and if you're going to fight the fight of faith to the end. You need a priest and you have one in Jesus Christ. Perseverance is not in our own strength. The reason any Christian perseveres is because of Jesus faithfully fulfilling his priestly work. The one-time act that he performed at the cross, making atonement for us, and the ongoing act that he performs of intercessing for us. He is our intercessor. This is his priestly office. This is his priestly duty. And that's why the author of Hebrews is going to say in chapter 7, verse 25, because of his work, he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. That's why the author of Hebrews says, hold fast to him. If this is our confession, Hold fast to him. If this is what is true, cling to him. Don't let go of him. He's better than any priest in the world. And my question is why? Why is Jesus better? How is Jesus better than any priest ever was or ever will be? How is he better? I think the author of Hebrews in verses 14 through 16 is going to give us four ways that Jesus is better than any priest ever. Four glorious truths that distinguish Christ as better than any other high priest. Truth number one, found in verse 14. Jesus has done what no other high priest could do. Jesus has done what no other high priest could do. Priests were the guards over worship, not in a sense of singing, but in a sense of sacrifice on behalf of the people. The high priest, you remember, wore that ephod. It had 
three stones across and four stones down, the 12 tribes of Israel. They had all of their names on these stones, and they wore them close to their heart, on their chest. And then they had two stones on their shoulders that had all uh, 12 tribes in, in pairs of six on their shoulders. So they carried the burden of the people before the Lord. Jesus is better than that, not because he wears an ephod today. Instead, he was stripped of all of his clothing and nailed to a cross. And on that cross, he bore our sin on his shoulders. He knew our names close to his heart. We talked about this on Wednesday. He knew us individually. Yes, he was purchasing for himself his bride as a whole, unified whole, but he also knew us individually. He thought of you individually on the cross. But he did not stay dead. Verse 14, therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, he passed through the heavens. This is his ascension and his enthronement. He didn't stay dead. He rose from the dead, as we just read this morning in Luke's gospel. He ascended into heaven. The high priest on earth, as an earthly human figure, would pass through many things on the day of atonement entering into the Holy of Holies. They would pass through the outer court, then the holy place, then into the Holy of Holies. So this language of a priest passing through absolutely makes sense to a Jewish mind. That's what the high priest would do, pass through to get to God's presence. But here, Jesus doesn't pass through a curtain in the temple. He passes through the heavens themselves to enter the Father's dwelling place. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 24, Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Or Hebrews chapter 6, verse 19, this hope, this is what we sang earlier, we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, one which enters within the veil. Jesus Christ has passed through the heavens and has sat down at the right hand of the Father sat down. This is a very interesting term. The high priest on earth passing through the outer court, through the holy place, into the holy of holies, they would not sit down, right? They weren't hanging out there for very long. A sinner in their sin doesn't relax in the presence of holiness. In fact, they would have little bells that were woven into the fabric of their garment so that you could hear them jingling so that if the high priest in their sin was struck dead before the Holy of Holies, before the Ark of the Covenant, those bells would stop jingling and you could pull that high priest out. Not so with Jesus Christ. He passed through the heavens and he sat down at the right hand of the Father. Remember in reading through Leviticus, you see all of those uh, insanely detailed dimensions of what the tabernacle is supposed to be. Remember the, the measurements of the garments, all the placements of the different uh, uh, different positions of the different uh, aspects of what was inside. You have the table of showbread. You have the lamp that's there. You have all these different placements. One thing you'll never find in the tabernacle is a little bench or a little seat to sit down. That's not the job of the priest. They don't sit down anywhere because the work of the priest was never finished. You can't just sit down and say, I've done my duty. You go in and you go out and you go in and you go out and you go in and you go out. You never sit down. But Jesus Christ, he has sat down because his work is finished. That's what he cried out on the cross, right? It is finished. It's paid in full. It's done. And when Jesus was raised from the dead, the Father said, yes, it is. It is finished. So therefore, Jesus has done 
what no other high priest could ever do. Secondly, the second reason why Jesus is a better high priest, he is what no other high priest could be. Jesus is what no other high priest could be. So he has done what no other high priest could do, and he is what no other high priest could be. This is in verse 14 as well. He passes through the heavens, and what is his name? His name is Jesus, the Son of God. Two beautiful titles. We have a personal name, his human name, Jesus. He was human. He's fully human, 100% truly human. Not pretending to be human, not faking it. And then 100% God, Son of God. Son of is a, is a title that means uh, equal to. He's equal to God. Everything that God is, Jesus is. This is what Colossians says, that the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form in Christ. Everything that it means to be God dwells in the person of Jesus Christ. So he's fully human, and he's fully God. 100% human, 100% God. Truly human, truly God. We need both. High priests were truly human, but that's all they could be. They were not truly God. We need perfect humanity, and we need perfect holiness. We need both. This is why, as we're going to study when we get to December, when we study the incarnation, we study Christmas, this is why Christmas is such a beautiful miracle that we have Jesus Christ, 100% human, 100% God, in the same person. So precious. This is why Jesus is better. He is what no other high priest could ever be. He is God and human at the exact same time. That's what makes him better. We, we use that word better all the time. We've been using it a lot lately. 2019 seems to be way better than 2020 has been. But Jesus is truly the better high priest because there's nothing better than him. That's the point of the book of Hebrews. That's the point of the Bible as a whole. That's the point of us gathering together to remind each other Jesus is better. That's the whole point of living life. To live life, to treasure Jesus as more valuable than anything this world has to offer. He's better than your former manner of life. He's better than every idol you could possibly chase down. He's better than fortune, fame, and easy life or comfort itself. He's better than all of it. So the author of Hebrews says, number one, Jesus is better because he's done what no other high priest could ever do. Number two, he is, he is what no other high priest could ever be. Number three, the third reason why Jesus is better is because he has endured what no other high priest could ever endure. He has endured what no other high priest could endure. This is verse 15. We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. This is the same thing said twice, once in the negative, once in the positive. He is unable and he is able. In fact, there's a triple negative here. We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with us, but he's tempted, but without sin. Triple negative. He sympathizes with us. This is what we've been talking about in our study in Gentle and Lowly. He's compassionate. He sympathizes with us. That's a, a connective word. It has, it's empathy. It's compassion. It's desiring to be with someone. It's feeling their pain. When you hurt, Jesus hurts. When you struggle, Jesus knows that struggle. Why? Because verse 15 says, He was tempted in all things as we are. He knows exactly what it is to be human because he was fully human and he was tempted in every single thing that you and I are. 
not every single temptation itself, but every kind of temptation, every umbrella group of temptation. He knows it. He was tempted even beyond all of our temptations because we give in. We give in in temptation. And the, the, the sooner we give in to temptation, uh, the, the less strong that temptation becomes, right? It's done its job and it doesn't need to grow stronger. But Jesus never gave in, so temptation just mounted and mounted and mounted and got stronger and stronger and harder and harder. C.S. Lewis says it this way, No man knows how bad he is until he's tried very hard to be good. A silly idea is current that good people do not know what temptation means, but this is an obvious lie. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. After all, you find out the strength of the German army by fighting against it, not by giving in. You find out the strength of a wind by trying to walk against it, not by lying down. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. That's why bad people, in one sense, know very little about badness. They've lived a sheltered life by always giving in. We never find out the strength of the evil impulse inside of us until we try to fight it. And Jesus, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation is also the only man who knows to the fullest what temptation means. He knows what it means. In fact, he had temptations that went beyond anything we will ever be tempted in. He was tempted by the devil to turn stones into bread. We don't have that temptation. That's not a temptation that we will ever experience. So not only was Jesus tempted in all ways that we are, he was tempted beyond all ways that we are tempted, and he was tempted to a fuller degree, to a fuller extent. He knows, he's capable of unparalleled understanding and sympathy. How could Jesus understand these things? It's a question that we, we talked about on Wednesday night at our study a few weeks ago. How could Jesus understand every temptation we feel or every emotion that we feel when he hasn't ever sinned? Because one of the emotions that we struggle through a lot in our lives is the emotion of disappointing God, of feeling that we've let God down. Surely Jesus does not know what that feels like because he never let the Father down. And the answer comes at the cross. 2 Corinthians 5, 21, the Father made Jesus who knew no sin to be sin, to become sin on our behalf so that we could be the righteousness of God in him. Jesus became sin at the cross. At the cross, he knew exactly what it feels like to disappoint the Father and to disobey the Father because he became sin. He knew what shame felt like because he became shameful in bearing our sin. That's why he cries out on the cross. You see a very interesting juxtaposition. The very first saying that Jesus says on the cross is, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they are doing father there's an intimate relationship with his father because he has not jesus has not been made to be sin yet and then at the very end he says father into your hands i commit my spirit and then he gives up his spirit he breathes his last so at the very beginning father the very end father but right in the middle he says something he addresses his father but he does not say father why have you forsaken me he says my god my god because that relationship has been estranged it's been broken he is now our sin bearer and therefore, he cannot speak to God as father, intimate relationship, totally reconciled, nothing in between us. No, there was sin now in between Jesus and the Father. And therefore, he addresses the Father as judge, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
So he knows exactly what we feel when we are in the midst of struggling with sin. He knows exactly what it feels like to fight sin. He knows exactly what it feels like when we give in to sin, not because he ever did, but when he became sin on the cross, he took our guilt, he took our shame, he felt that in its fullness so that he could do away with it once and for all and give you a perfect record of righteousness, of guiltlessness. We live in a world where people like to say, you don't know me. You don't know me. You don't know what I'm going through. You can't speak to my experience because you don't know me. This is something that I even hear here at school. When we're talking about the issue of uh, abortion, and some of my students will say to me, uh, some of my female students will say, well, you have no right to speak on this issue because you're not a woman. You can't talk about abortion because you're not a woman. And there are reasonable, logical, compassionate, and gracious ways to undo what they're saying. But many people say this. You, you can't speak to this issue because you don't know. You don't know me. You don't know my experience. You don't know what I'm going through. You wouldn't understand. We are tempted to say the same thing. No one knows what I'm going through in my sin. No one knows what I'm going through in my struggle. But brothers and sisters, we, we can't say that. This passage tells us that Jesus knows. You have one person who will always be able to know exactly what you're going through. And just as our brother Luke said earlier, do you believe that? I know that you know that intellectually, but do you believe that he genuinely knows what you're going through. I think that the way that we can functionally determine if we believe it or not is how often we go to him in the midst of our struggles. Because if we go to him in the midst of our struggles, we're saying, I know you know this. We're saying, Jesus, I know you've been here before. Jesus, I know you've experienced this before. You can help me. You can be with me. I know you understand what this is like. But if in the midst of our struggles, we don't draw near to him, we say, oh, you don't understand. You wouldn't possibly be able to comprehend. That's when we're saying functionally, I know that you know this, but functionally, I don't really believe it. Oh, for grace to trust him more. Jesus was not impervious to temptation. That's the Gnostic view of Jesus. 1 John chapter 4, verses 1 through 2 says, Beloved, don't believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they're from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this, you know that the, the Spirit of God, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, human, from God, that's the truth, come in the flesh. Martin Luther said the right way to come to a proper understanding of Jesus Christ is to begin with his humanity. He was 100% human. Sometimes I think we, we have this idea that as Jesus is being tempted, he's resisting in his humanity, resisting in his humanity, resisting, resisting, resisting. And finally he says, man, this is too hard. I'm playing the God trump card. I can't sin because I'm God. Now, could Jesus have sinned? No, because he's God. He can't sin. God cannot sin. There are many things that God can't do. He can't lie. He can't be tempted. He can't sin. He can't change. Praise the Lord. So in Jesus' deity and his divine nature, there's no way he could have sinned. But I believe the scriptures are clear. He never played that divine trump card. He never played, oh, I'm God. I can get out of this. No, he fought as 100% human because you and I can't play that trump card, right? We can't play the card of, well, we're God, so we don't have to fight that temptation anymore. We're done. And since you and I can't play that trump card, Jesus lived our lives before us in all of our limitations. 
And so I believe that in his humanity, this is the question if you want to say it in theological terms of impeccability or peccability. Impeccability means Jesus could never have sinned. Peccability means he could have sinned, but he didn't. I believe the scriptures are clear. In Jesus' deity, there's no way he could have ever sinned. But in his humanity, since he never played that trump card, he could have sinned, he just never did. He never did. He was not impervious to temptation. In his deity, he could never have sinned. In his humanity, he could have, but he didn't. And he never played the trump card of his deity when struggling with sin. He was born of a woman in the likeness of humanity in all of our limitations. I mean, just think about it. Can God die? No, God can't die. Did Jesus die? Yes. Was he God? Yes. How does that work? Does God have blood? God's a spirit. God doesn't have blood. Did Jesus have blood? Yes. How does that work? Because he had two natures. This is the beauty of the incarnation. 100% God, 100% human at the exact same time. That's why he knows exactly what it is to be human. Exactly what it is to fight through temptation. He can sympathize with our weaknesses because he had the exact same ones. There's a beautiful principle in music called sympathetic resonance. Sympathetic resonance is the technology behind a tuning fork. You know, you hit the little tuning fork and the, it gives off a certain sound and you can uh, set it on a, on a piano and you can figure out if the piano is in tune. If we had another guitar here, I could play the E string, the bottom E string, and Luke's guitar would ring that bottom E string. Not with, I wouldn't even touch his guitar. I would just play that, pluck that string, and his string would start vibrating because of this amazing property in music called sympathetic resonance. That's what Jesus has for you. When, you're, when the strings of your heart are plucked with pain or difficulty or a trial or temptation, there is sympathetic resonance in heaven for you. As your, the strings of your heart are plucked, Jesus' heartstrings are plucked too. They, they reverberate in heaven with you and with me. He knows our weaknesses. Thomas Schreiner says it this way, as a human being, Jesus knows the frailties and groanings that beset the human race. He's not a distant and aloof high priest, but he himself is intimately acquainted with the human condition. Indeed, he experienced to the full range temptation itself. The delight and joys offered by sin were no stranger to Jesus. He was cognizant of and experienced the attractiveness of sin, realizing that it brought pleasure. He understands every temptation that we face because he faced something similar. Nevertheless, he never surrendered to sin's power. He shared in our weakness and frailty, but he did not, not even once, give himself over to sin. He always obeyed the will of his Father. Christ's instrument was struck just like ours in every way. When a note of weakness is struck in our hearts, he knows what that feels like. So I tell Thomas Goodwin in his book, The Heart of Christ in Heaven Towards Sinners on Earth, which Gentle and Lowly is an exposition of that book. And we, we covered it in the last chapter. Thomas Goodwin says that for believers, not for non-believers, but for believers, Jesus sees sin in the life of a believer uh, like a parent sees sickness in the life of their kids. No longer as judge, no longer wanting to be separated from it. But when Jesus sees our sin, he wants to rush in. He wants to help us. Right? We, we studied that in the chapter. What does our sin evoke from Jesus? It evokes a longing for him to be close to us, not getting away from us. Not, oh, how ugly are you now, but I want to be with you to help you. 
Martin Luther said it this way, I will only trust in God when I know that he loves me and he wants to be kind to me. I'm only going to trust in God when I know he loves me and he wants to be kind to me. It's the beauty of this passage. That's why the author of Hebrews is saying, don't walk away from Jesus, because if you do, you're walking away from the best thing that life can offer you, Jesus himself, who is the giver of satisfaction and life itself. There's a beautiful hymn entitled, A Man There Is a Real Man. And it just it shows the beauty of Christ's humanity, but yet without sin, right? That's why the author of Hebrews says he can sympathize with our weakness. He's been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Fully human, but without sinning. We need that, right? We don't need another sympathetic sinner. This is, I think, what some of our accountability groups end up turning into, right? You struggle with sin, I struggle with sin. Let's just talk about how much we struggle with sin. Just constantly, ah, sin's so hard. We don't need another sympathetic sinner. We need a sympathetic high priest who has never sinned to give us his holiness. We need a savior who can lead us to victory, a forerunner who paves the way to get us to God, who has endured the full force of temptation's power and has overcome. That's what this hymn talks about. A man there is a real man. It starts by saying, a man there is a real man with wounds still gaping wide from, from which rich streams of blood once ran in hands and feet and sides. So fully human. Tis no wild fancy of our brains, no metaphor we speak, the same dear man in heaven now reigns that suffered for our sake. So in heaven at the right hand, Father. This wondrous man of whom we tell is true, almighty God. He bought our souls from death and hell, the price, his heart's own blood. There's that juxtaposition. He has blood and he died, but he's true, almighty God. That human heart, he still retains, though throned in highest bliss and feels each tempted member's pains, for our afflictions are his. So come then, repenting sinner, come, approach with humble faith. Oh, what thou will, this total sum is canceled by his death. His blood can cleanse the blackest soul and wash our guilt away. He will present us sound and whole on that tremendous day. Jesus is better than any high priest because he has done what no other high priest could do. He is what no other high priest could be. He's endured what no other high priest could endure. And finally, number four, he can give what no other high priest could give. He can give what no other high priest could give. This is by very definition of who he is. He can give us something that no other high priest could ever give us. This is in verse 16. Therefore, because of who he is, right? Therefore, because of everything that was just said about who Jesus is, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let's approach with confidence. Of course we can, because we know who Jesus is. He's not going to say, how dare you enter my throne? How dare you come before me? How dare you, you who are sinful? I know nothing of what this means. No, he knows our weakness. He knows what it means to be frail and live inside of the limitations that we have. So he says, I know. Come to me. I'm a friend. We can approach with confidence to receive mercy and grace. Mercy, there's mercy to be received. There's grace to be given. And draw near over and over and over again. God's grace will never wear out. 
He says, draw near to the throne. A throne is for royalty. A throne is for a king. And yet you are welcomed to that throne. You're welcomed. It's like a father just lovingly wrapping up his kids in his arms and just saying, I love you. and I'm so happy that you're my son or you're my daughter. That's what God the Father does with us. So the key to Christian perseverance is gripping tightly to Christ and not letting go of him. But we know that we will always end up slipping in our hold of him. And that's why the greater key to Christian perseverance is knowing that he'll never let go of us. He'll never let go of you. Sure, there's warnings in the Bible. Don't let go. Don't let go. If you let go, this is what's going to happen. But there's no contradictions between the warnings of saying don't let go and the promises that says he'll never let go. Warnings are the means of the promises being lived out. So therefore, draw near to him. I love how it says we can receive mercy and find grace to help in times of need. You can read books. You can get tips and tricks and advice on anything in this world. But I don't want tips of how to live life. I want help in living life. And Jesus offers help, not just advice. So when you don't know anything, when you're confused, when you're struggling, you have Jesus who will help you in times of need. When you don't know what's going to happen, you have him. He's always available, and you always have a generous high priest who will graciously welcome you into his throne room. He'll never grow tired of you. He'll never be annoyed by your presence. He lives to pray for you, to be accessible to you. He doesn't need you to be perfect to come to him. He knows you. He's perfect on your behalf, and he welcomes you into his throne room. You won't find apathy, indifference, or rejection from him. No, you will find mercy and forgiveness and grace and strength. He doesn't need a good performance from you. He doesn't need proof that you're trying hard. He doesn't need rituals from you to satisfy him. He just wants you to draw near to him. So come in all of your rags. Come in all of your dirty, filthy sinfulness. Come in all of it. Don't hide from him. Come to him. There's nothing that you've ever done that surprises him. He knows it all. He knows you need him. He knows you're going to fail again. So you can come boldly before a throne that's occupied by a great high priest who loves you. He supplies his people with everything necessary to persevere. And if you come to him, you will not fail to end up where he is. He'll see to it that you get there. So brothers and sisters, don't give up. Don't ever give up. You know you have a great high priest, so go to him. Draw near to him. How do we do that? We do that through scripture reading. We do that through prayer. We do that through fellowship. We do that through our studies. Draw near to him. If you are here this morning as a believer in Jesus Christ, you know that you can, with confident assurance, draw near before the throne, knowing that he sees your sin as a sickness, no longer judging it, but empathizing with you in it. You don't have such a promise if you are a non-believer. If you do not know Jesus, God the Father only has wrath to abide over you and on you currently. And yet in, this, in the exact same breath, he welcomes you. Come now and that wrath will be taken away. Come now and that wrath which has been poured out on Jesus, his 
perfect righteousness will be yours. And your penalty that you deserve for sin will be his. It's already been lived out. So just come. There's nothing you have to do. Just come to him. Come to him in faith. Come to him trusting. Come to him clinging to him. Come to him. I just want to end this morning by reading some of my favorite portions of Gentle and Lowly. We're going to get to these as we go through this book. Dane Orland says, When we sin, we are encouraged to bring our mess to Jesus because we know exactly how he will receive us. He doesn't handle us roughly. He doesn't scowl or scold. He doesn't lash out like many of our parents did. And all of this restraint on his part is not because he has a deluded view of our sinfulness. He knows our sinfulness far more deeply than we do. Indeed, we are aware of just the tip of the iceberg of our own depravity, even in our most searching moments of self-knowledge. His restraint flows from his tender heart for his people. Jesus is not trigger-happy, not harsh, reactionary, or easily exasperated. He is the most understanding person in the universe. The posture most natural to him is not a pointed finger, but open arms. Thomas Goodwin says, that which keeps men off is this. They don't know Christ's mind and his heart. The truth is that Jesus is more glad of us than we could ever be of him. The Father says over you, if you are in Christ, the Father says over you what he said over his son. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. He says that about you. You are his beloved son or daughter if you are in Christ. The father of the prodigal was the forwarder of the two to that joyful meeting. Have you a mind? He that came down from heaven, as he himself says in the text, to die for you will meet you more than halfway, as the prodigal's father is said to do. So therefore, come to him. And then that beautiful sentence, if you knew his heart, you would come. So Dane Ortland says, and we'll conclude with this, whatever is crumbling all around you in your life, wherever you feel stuck, this remains undeflectable, his heart for you, the real you. It's gentle and lowly. So go to him. That place in your life where you feel most defeated, he's there. He lives there. He lives right there. And his heart is for you. It's not on the other side of that. You don't have to get through it and clean yourself up and then go to him. No, go to him now. Inside of the darkness, his heart is gentle and lowly towards you. Your anguish is his home. Go to him. He says, if you knew his heart, you would. My friends, let's go to Jesus. Let's do it collectively today as we sing to our great high priest. Let's do it together as we fellowship on this Lord's Day. Let's do it together as we gather during the middle of the week to encourage each other to say, that's why we gather, right? We gather to say, do you remember? And don't ever forget it, that Jesus is better than anything this world has to offer. And let's just keep coming back every Lord's Day to remind ourselves of that reality and to cling to Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we are so grateful that we have your Son, our great high priest. He has passed through the heavens. He is seated at the right hand of you, our Heavenly Father. He is what no other high priest could be. He has done what no other high priest could do. He's endured what no other high priest could ever endure. 
and therefore he can give what no other high priest could ever give. And so that's why we come to him, a great high priest whose name is not aloof, or whose name is not, uh, I don't understand you, or whose name is not stranger. His name is love. And therefore we draw near now, asking for help to believe, to trust, to cling. God, we love you. Help us now to draw near to our Savior. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.